Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks. If you are interested in adding some structure to your training program, I have some options that might interest you. Over on my website, ZachBitter.com, I have a wide range of ready-made plans that have options for beginners to advanced endurance athletes. I also have personalized plan options where I will cater a plan specific to the event you are preparing for and your personal schedule and training availability. You can also access a variety of add-on options from email collaboration to consultation calls to help guide you through your training and nutrition needs. You can access these with or without a formal plan. So head over to ZachBitter.com and let me know what you think. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a listener-generated question, answer, or topic episode for you. So it'll be just me and what I picked out of the list for questions to hit on this episode. I actually got quite a few more questions this time around, I think partly because I threw out a call on Instagram as well as Twitter, and I got a lot of what I would consider maybe shorter quick fire questions on Instagram. So what I ended up doing is I took four questions that have a little more detail to them. I'm going to do that for this episode. And then I'll take uh, the host of questions that came in over at Instagram and do a little more of a rapid fire Q&A episode after this one. So if you sent in a question over Instagram and are wondering why I didn't hit it on this one, that's why uh, today the four questions have to do with structuring your running if you're trying to train for a marathon, but also training for a triathlon. So how do you optimize your marathon potential while training for a triathlon? Also a question about some of the supplements that I take as well as how I feel about creatine for runners. Uh, And then we have a question that sort of fits along those lines as well, which is essentially asking about supplementing with essential amino acids, Uh, timing of it, should you do it, that sort of thing. And then finally, uh, a question that came in about continuous glucose monitors. So we will go through those questions for this episode. If I hit on a question and you'd like me to dive deeper or direct it in a different context, certainly reach out and let me know. Happy to always follow up on these questions and add more detail if it's something that the listeners are interested in hearing my take on in more depth than what I give on the first go with some of these things. All right. So first question, I'll read it exactly as it was sent in by uh, Hans Weber. And Hans asks, how would you combine marathon training and training for triathlon? Do you think it would be enough or efficient to do one speed workout, one to two base runs, and one long run per week? The total weekly volume would come to around 10 to 11 hours of endurance training. All right, this is a cool question. So for those of you kind of wondering just kind of maybe some of the variances, with triathlon, obviously you're dealing with three sports. You're training for three sports at once, the swim, the bike, and the run. And in order to try to prepare for a race like that, you kind of have to be a jack of all trades within those three disciplines because they are unique enough where there's going to be things that are specific to doing that actual act that don't necessarily translate to the others. Now, there are things you will benefit from. Like if you go out and you do a long bike ride or do a workout on your bike, some of those benefits will carry over into things like 
running and swimming, they just won't be quite as mechanically specific. So having the actual practice of them is important. So a lot of times when you have triathletes training, they're doing maybe a a couple to a few sessions for each of those. And they're kind of rotating between them. They're going to be doing specific workouts within it. It's just kind of like a lot more going on with that. The other interesting thing about triathlon is since the swimming and biking portions of that sport are much lower impact, you can do much more volume with it. It's why you see a lot of times professional triathletes, certainly Ironman triathletes, putting in quite a bit larger volume than what you would see, like say a professional marathon runner do. A lot of that just has to do with the impact that comes along the pounding that you get with running that you don't necessarily get on the bike or in the pool. It limits the amount of actual running you can do. So to some degree, I think you're going to want to lean into the running side of the sport a little bit more than maybe you would in a traditional buildup since you're trying to maximize your potential in the marathon as well as a triathlon. And that's going to really give you that impact that you're going to want on race day to kind of keep yourself able to get physically through the race itself. Uh, the other interesting thing, and it wasn't quite sure what Hans was doing from triathlon because triathlon can be pretty far in scope from sprint up to Ironman. If you're doing an Ironman, it's going to be a little bit easier just because then at least the running portion of that particular event is going to be in line with the distance you'll be running for the marathon itself. Uh, but either way, I think there's some takeaways we can look at here. Uh, I think you're on the right you're thinking along the right lines in terms of the frequency in which you will want to be doing some running. I think three to four sessions per week is a good target since you're sort of prioritizing running over the other two disciplines. I would say make the quality sessions lean more towards running. So what that might look like is doing a little bit less base work or easy recovery runs and transition those more to the pool or to the bike. But when you're working on things like short intervals, long intervals, tempo runs, long run development, that sort of stuff are going to be good focus points for you to be able to do and do specifically towards the marathon. So the marathon is going to have some some differences from other endurance events in that its intensity is going to be different because it's a very specific distance. So the workouts that you do, or at least the order in which you do them for say a marathon versus a 10 K is going to be a little different. So as you're kind of moving through your training, you're going to want that order of operations to match up towards your marathon as best as possible. And what that likely means is early on, let's say you're focusing on some short intervals I would make one of those speed workouts a short interval session earlier in the training plan. And at this point, your long run development will be at its early stages. So you probably have a little more training load bandwidth to do two base runs if you want. Uh, So I'd maybe start out with a short interval session, two base runs and the early stages of your long run development. As you move into the plan though, and you start kind of transitioning a little bit further away from short intervals and get a little more specific to marathon intensity and start introducing some things that are going to be like, lactate threshold or tempo run, what I'd call long intervals. So for most people, this is going to be an intensity that you can sustain for say 45 to 60 minutes in kind of a race day type setting. As you kind of transition into more of that work, you're going to increase your volume almost by default because you're lowering intensity a bit. And when you lower intensity, a lot of times you're going to increase volume in order to keep that training load similar uh, or the same in some cases. 
So once you kind of start moving into that, that's where maybe you'd want to drop down or at least reduce one of those base runs so that you're not biting off too much running to the point where it's really bleeding into any opportunities you have to swim and bike at the capacity you want to do to be ready for the triathlon that you have. As you get further into the plan, when I'm looking at a marathon plan, what I like to see is once you get closer to the race itself, there's a lot of application to start doing race pace or race intensity specific workouts. For a marathon, I find these to be best embedded into the long run. Reason being is your long run is going to be the most specific workout from a duration standpoint to the marathon race itself. So what I would end up doing once you kind of get to that, that last, like maybe six to eight weeks of the marathon training is stick to one base run, one workout. I'd be doing long intervals, maybe tempo runs with that workout. And then since your long run stretched out, you're going to have more of a training load there from a volume standpoint. Also embed marathon pace work within that. So for example, let's say you're going to do a two and a half hour long run. I would embed say maybe 45 to 60 minutes worth of marathon pace work within that. So that's kind of a double dip. You have your workout of the long run, but you also have a workout for most people is going to be in the moderate intensity category at their marathon pace. And that's going to also be kind of another workout. So now you're kind of juggling three runs per week, but only one of them is based. Two of them are kind of specific at a moderate to kind of higher intensity work. And that's how I would kind of structure it. There's also going to be maybe some considerations depending on when and how far apart these races are. If your triathlons first, or if your marathons first, those will all kind of maybe weigh into what you do. Really what I would do, uh, generally speaking is look at it from the standpoint of training for a triathlon, but every triathlete's going to structure their training a little bit differently based on their strengths and weaknesses. So they may lean into the running part more if they feel like they can gain more by practicing that discipline, same with the bike, same with the swim. I would just go into this, looking at it as if the run is the more important or the one that you need to spend more time on from a development standpoint just because you're going to be using that in isolation outside of the triathlon itself when you do target that marathon race. But thanks for that question, Hans. Let me know if I missed the intent or if you want to clarify some more details on it. Happy to add some more context to that one. Next one is what, if any supplements do you take or recommend and how do you feel about creatine for runners? All right. So this, this is kind of like a two-part one. I'll go through what I use for supplements and kind of some of the reasons why, and then you can take that and do with it what you will. If you think it's something that's worth looking into for yourself, or if there's some measures you want to take to find out if it's a worthwhile thing for you. A lot of times when I think about supplements, I sort of put these into two categories. So there's like supplements that I would be taking that are kind of more, more intended for the micronutrients. And then there's going to be supplements that I would consider sort of supplements where they're kind of like intra workout or fuel. So they're going to add a significant caloric value to them. And for me training for ultra marathons, these type of supplements find their way into my daily intake, especially as I'm kind of peaking for a race, or I'm in that last phase where I'm really preparing myself for race day. And I'm going to start practicing what I'm going to be eating and drinking out there on the course. So if you consider that a supplement then, uh, I, I definitely have those and I'll share, I'll share kind of like that sort of, a, that sort of structure as well, uh, from just the kind of the micronutrient standpoint, I'll, there's a few that I'll kind of take on a more regular daily basis. And those are going to be athletic greens or AG one product. It's got like a bunch of just micronutrients, prebiotics, probiotics, 
Uh, it's like a green powder. I'll just pour it into six to eight ounces of uh, cold water in the morning, shake that up and drink it. They, it comes with this vitamin D like tincture that'll put a couple drops of that in there too. So that's kind of one that I'll be kind of using the routine pretty much year round. Uh, the other one that I'll use on a pretty re- frequent basis, if not every day, especially during kind of peak training phases is magnesium breakthrough, which is a magnesium supplement. And I'll take two caps of those before I go to bed at night, uh, mostly just for the relaxation. Magnesium tends to be a micronutrient that people can be more likely to be deficient in and probably hits endurance athletes a little harder. So I'll take those for that purpose. Uh, Then the other one would be element electrolytes, if you want to consider that a supplement. So I'll, this one will fluctuate a little bit more based on heat. So if I'm running in cooler temps, and the salting of my food and the electrolytes in my food are adequate. I might just be drinking water and having a little bit of element here and there for, for longer sessions or specific workouts. When you get to the summer, I'm out there doing longer runs, training in the heat for extended periods of time and things like that. And being able to kind of stay hydrated during the workout itself becomes more challenging. I'll end up kind of phasing in a little more of those elements. But one of the packets of elements is good for me and for about two liters of water. So uh, when it gets to be where I'm using it frequently enough, sometimes I'll just have like a two liter bottle that I'll put one packet into and just have that kind of in the fridge so I can fill up bottles for it. Or if I want more electrolytes in while I'm sipping on water uh, throughout the day, I have that there. I'll throw them into a travel bag and stuff too, because I find like when I'm traveling is when I'm less consistent or at least deviating from my standard cooking practices a little bit more than I normally would because I'm not, you know, in my own kitchen cooking my foods on, uh, on a consistent basis. Like I would be when I'm at home for extended periods of time. Uh, the next would be kind of the intra workout stuff or the, the lifestyle food stuff. So for me, I lean pretty heavily on S fuels product line for that. They have a product called race plus that I'll use for my carbohydrate, uh, muscle glycogen defense stuff. So that's basically only during workouts that'll use that long runs when I'm getting closer to the race itself. So I practice that because it usually makes up, you know, close to 50% of my intra race fuel. Uh, so that one ends up kind of ebbing and flowing a bit as well, but it, it flexes up quite a bit when I'm doing long run development and that lasts like six to eight weeks before, before a race itself. Uh, and then I'll, I'll use their whole product line throughout in certain phases, it just depends on what my calorie needs are, my macronutrient ratios are, uh, they're, they make a line of low carbohydrate stuff. So like their protein powder revival, I'll have a scoop of that, especially if I'm, uh, not eating things that have quite as much protein in it or traveling, I'll lean on that a little bit. And then their, uh, S fuels train and life are kind of their fat based powders that the train is kind of fruity flavored. So I'll put that in kind of like some high fat smoothies. Sometimes the life powder I'll use in, uh, like coffee as like a creamer sometimes as well. And then, uh, they've got another product that's relatively new called keto three, which is just kind of like a cereal based low carbohydrate, uh, product. That's kind of a lifestyle thing. So here in the summertime, a lot of times I'm training in the heat trains ramping up and I'm bringing back a little bit more carbohydrates. I'll make kind of like a fruit yogurt, a keto three bowl that I'll mix like some chopped up fruit, some yogurt, and I'll put a few scoops of the keto three in there. Uh, and then maybe a scoop of the revival protein as like a post workout or post run, uh, 
meal or snack to kind of close the gap between finishing and when I'll cook a full meal or something like that. Uh, I just tend to think when, when it comes to picking the carbs I'm going to use, when it gets hot out, I usually turn more to fruits. When it's a little cooler out winter years, I'm maybe looking more towards like tubers and squash type stuff. So this time of year that uh, the fruit yogurt keto three S or keto three revival uh, mix is something that I probably have a little more frequently than I would say like in January or February when the temps are a little, little chillier. Um, I have actually been playing around with this beetroot extract uh, that uh, I don't know if I'll continue to use or not. I actually eat a fair amount of beets. That is a carbohydrate source that I tend to keep around a little more frequently so I'm not sure that I necessarily need more of it, but beetroot and beetroot extract is something that's been fairly well studied and can be helpful for endurance athletes. So uh, I had a company send me some of that. So I'm just playing around with it right now. Maybe I'll do talk a little bit more about that in a future episode and dive into kind of why beets are maybe a, a better carb source, if you want to say that, uh, than some alternatives in, in a future episode. Uh, then the, the second part of the question is creatine. And this is a good question because creatine has been studied for a long time, like over a hundred years. And it is very well respected within the fitness community as a supplement that does generate returns. So there's a few things to think about when we're thinking about creatine. The main purpose is to increase energy production in the cells, specifically ATP. So we're thinking about like that energy that is really quick, really fast. So think like sprinting or weightlifting, these high intensity type stuff. Uh, so that creatine phosphate that can help replenish ATP. So if you do something explosive and you dip into that ATP, the creatine phosphate can help replenish that. That's why you see a lot of times like weightlifters, bodybuilders, sprinters, are more high intensity athletes turning to it or talking about it a little more than do the endurance community. Uh, so it is going to be much more specific to high intensity work like the sprints and strength work or short duration things. Endurance exercises are going to be relatively low in intensity and therefore rely less on that fast production of ATP. So because of that, it's likely to give you less of a benefit when you're doing endurance related type work than if you were say trying to improve your sprint time or trying to improve your bench press or your squat or something like that in the gym. Um, the, there is some research that would suggest that it may improve, improve a specific training session, which over time may improve your performance. So let's say you're like focusing on like short intervals or something. You're in that phase of your training or you're doing a strength work block of training, like in the off season or something like that, that would maybe be a, a point in time in which an endurance athlete would, would potentially want to look at creatine as an option, uh, may provide a benefit for endurance athletes to include sprints, high intensity intervals and strength work in their training. So you may want to ask yourself, like, how frequent are those type of things in your particular lifestyle? If you're someone who does a little bit of a lower volume, higher intensity, like strategy, it may benefit you more than say someone who's following like a maximum aerobic function or like a lower intensity, higher volume, uh, training phase. With that said, current short-term research suggests little or no benefit to endurance performance. So from the research they have, they haven't really seen that I'm aware of anyway, that it's really like producing faster times on the race course. So 
it, it seems like when you kind of consider everything that goes into endurance training phase, creatine, adding that to your, uh, your program isn't going to have a very noticeable benefit or, or growth. So a lot of people are considering when this type of stuff is like, well, there's only a certain number of supplements or things I'm going to purchase for, for this activity. And, you know, so for, for creatine would be much more beneficial from an, from an expense standpoint for someone who's doing more short intensity, higher, uh, short intensity, like hit type training than someone training for like me training for like a hundred mile. Uh, so that is what, what you maybe want to think about when it comes to, uh, you know, whether you're going to include creatine or not. I don't think there's really necessarily a negative to trying it. So like, if you're just like, Hey, I'm curious about this. I don't care that I've got to pay whatever it is cost to try out a tub of creatine. I mean, you can try it out and see how, see how it goes for you. And if it, if it works out and you want to keep it in the routine, if it's worth that expense, then, then, then go for it. But thanks for sending in that question, Sean. Another great way to support the human performance outliers podcast is through the show sponsors. If one of the show sponsors has a product you're interested in trying out, you can let them know that you support this podcast by ordering through here. You can find all the show sponsors' details, links, and discounts at the show sponsor landing page, which is zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors, as well as in the show notes of every episode. This episode's sponsors include Optimal Carnivore. Optimal Carnivore knows that organ meats are some of the most nutrient-dense products on the planet, so Optimal Carnivore has shared with us their beef liver, organ meat, and bone marrow products in the past, but want to let you know about the new addition to their lineup. It is a nootropic called Brain Nourish. Nootropics can potentially boost overall brain function, focus, and productivity. Optimal Carnivore includes lion's mane's mushrooms and grass-fed beef brain, Each serving has 1,500 milligrams of 100% organic lion's mane mushroom and 1,500 milligrams of beef brain sourced from the highest quality regenerative farms in New Zealand. If you would like to give Brain Nourish or any of Optimal Carnivore products a try, they will plant a tree for every product sold. Simply head over to amazon.com forward slash Optimal Carnivore and use the code HUMANSAVE10, that's HUMANSAVE10, to receive 10% off your next order. Also supporting this episode are my friends at Element. Element makes an electrolyte supplement with no sugar. Each packet is loaded with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. They come in convenient single-serve packets that make them great for bringing along for a run, hike, to the gym, or while traveling. My go-tos at the moment are their citrus flavor during my longer runs and their chocolate flavor in my morning coffee. I will usually use about one packet with about two liters of liquid, whether that be the coffee with the chocolate version or straight water with the citrus flavor for my workouts. For $5 shipping, you can try out an eight flavor sample pack and get a feel for which flavors are your favorite and if you're going to work them into your rotation. So if you want to check them out, and support HPO along the way, you can head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. Links can be found in the show notes and at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Uh, next question is how best to supplement with essential amino acids and what doses and timing if you have not covered this before? And that's from Jeffrey Harper. 
Okay, a couple things here. So Jeff said essential amino acids. Sometimes I see people confusing essential amino acids and branch chain amino acids. Essentially branch chain amino acids, which also are something that like the fitness industry and performance-based supplements and things like that will tend to lean on from time to time. Essentially what we're looking at here is essential amino acids. There's nine of them. And of those nine, three of those are branch chain amino acids. So there's a few things to consider here. Uh, Jeff, you didn't necessarily say what you're training for. So I'll add a little bit of context around some stuff. So if I do hit on it, you'll have some specifics. Otherwise I'll have a general overview as well. Um, they actually did a study with branch chain amino acids. So three of those nine that uh, they supplemented before and during a hundred kilometer ultra marathon. And that study showed that it had no effect on performance, skeletal muscle damage or renal function. So it seems that at least with that study, when you're starting to get into those ultra marathons or hundred kilometer races, supplementing with uh, BCAs or um, BCAs or uh, essential amino acids is probably not going to be something that's going to move the needle on your performance a whole lot. Um, there is some research that would suggest that around eight to 10 grams of branch chain amino acids. So three of those uh, essential amino acids may reduce delayed onset muscle soreness. So some decent research to support this, but the thing about it is I don't believe those studies that have been done on that have been compared to just adding additional protein. So they didn't really do anything where they like had one group do everything normal, like a control group, another group take in the essential amino acids, branch chain amino acids, or both of those, or one or one or both of those, I guess you could technically have four arms to that study and then uh, have just them take like a whey protein. So it's hard to know sometimes if that introduction of that eight to 10 grams would have been the, the benefits or the reduction in DOMS would have also been reduced by just taking like a scoop of whey protein, or like eight to 10 grams of whey protein or something like that. So it's kind of hard to tease that out. Um, the, so usually my general advice then is like, if you, uh, if you're someone who isn't hitting your protein requirements, you may notice some benefits from these, but then again, you may also just be able to increase your protein and take care of that as well. So in that scenario, maybe you'd be better off just, uh, taking a protein supplement or something like that. Uh, one interesting thing though, that I will add is there is, po it is possible that they can Im improve fatigue resistance. So in like a prolonged race, something that you're going to do overnight, there may be some application for that. If you're trying to kind of like improve your, 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 your perception of like fatigue while you're out there. So that's where I wonder if with that hundred kilometer study, it may have been just short enough where they hadn't gotten to a point where like fatigue resistance to the degree of like sleep deprivation and things like that weren't really in the cards for that particular study. So maybe there's something to be had there with that. Uh, but at this point in time, I would say like, if you're look, if you have like a budget of like X number of dollars that you're going to spend on supplements or gear or whatever it is for your sport and things like that, generally speaking, and this kind of actually will go in line with the first question with, uh, supplements and things like too, the more you can check, the more boxes you can check with your just daily diet, which is going to be something that is kind of a built-in expense to some degree where there's a certain amount of food and groceries you're going to be buying anyway. So if you can structure that in a way where you're checking a lot of these boxes and limiting the amount of 
extra money you have to spend on supplements, that's probably the way to look at this. So foundationally speaking, try to get as much of this as you can in your day-to-day diet. When you enter like a big training block or you're focusing on peaking for an event or something like that, and it's getting more difficult to check all those boxes through your daily diets, or if you're the diet that you prefer and is sustainable for you and that you enjoy is deficient in some of these, you know, that's when it's maybe be worth taking a look at, at adding some of that stuff in. So one thing you can do to potentially check that at an individual level would be to you know, get a blood panel done maybe a couple times a year and just check to see if you're in range. Generally speaking with that, a lot of times when you're like deficient enough in some of these things, you start to notice it. Like you just, you don't, you don't feel great. You don't feel like you're hitting your workouts as, as well as you have in the past. So to some degree, I think you can use that as maybe the first test before you go and start spending a lot of money on things like blood tests and stuff like that is if you start noticing that something feels off, like you're not sleeping well at night or your energies are chronically dipping low and things like that. And you know, you're eating enough and doing all the sleep hygiene, things like that, then, then, then maybe it's worth taking a look at a blood panel to see if you're deficient in something and then specifically target that area versus just throwing the kitchen sink at it, so to speak. Um, but awesome. Thanks for that question, Jeff. Let me know if I missed your intent on that. Uh, last question is from Tim Busby and Tim asked for a dedicated, but recreational distance runner. What are the possible benefits of wearing a continuous glucose monitor? Would love to try this, but only if the insights are actionable and somewhat meaningful for diet and training adjustments. This is a cool question because CGMs or continuous glucose monitors have become much more popular over the last couple of years because there's been a number of companies who have brought to market pretty non-invasive ways to track essentially 24-7. So the way these devices usually work is you'll get this little like kit and with the kit we'll have a little tool that will punch the little continuous glucose monitor onto the back of your tricep. And they'll oftentimes come with a little like sticker that you put over that. So it stays in there and you're going to wear that for typically two weeks. And during that two weeks, these things will be able to tell you with your smartphone, you just scan it and it'll tell you where your, your glucose numbers are at. So you can scan it a few times a day, you can scan it as often as you want, but as long as you're scanning it, essentially every eight hours, it will give you that trend line of where your your glucose numbers have been from certain things so what a lot of people have been using these for is they will be testing out how their body responds to certain groups of foods certain individual foods and from certain timing and things like that so in terms of actionability if you're curious about how specific foods in your diet are going to impact your glucose scores whether you're going to have like a big glucose excursion and if it's going to come down right away, which is kind of what your body should do, or if certain foods shoot it up and keep it up for a while and see where things are either working for you or against you, that would be something that you could use to kind of figure that out. It, it gets interesting because there does seem to be a lot of variance from one person to the next. I'll always remember before continuous glucose monitors, when people were still just like kind of pricking their finger and testing I think it was Rob Wolf and his wife did an N of, I guess, N of two experiment where they would check their glucose after eating certain things. And one of them that was really funny was when, when Rob would eat like a cookie, his would shoot way up. His wife's wouldn't, then he did a banana. Wouldn't his wouldn't shoot up, but hers would. So like whether, whether they were 
fine or hurt by that glucose jump is kind of the next question. I think a lot of it has to do with how well your body controls for that. But from an actionable standpoint, I think if you're seeing like certain food products, shoot your glucose way up. And then in order to correct that, it dips way down and you have like this deep energy low or this lethargy kicking because of that, just from like a, a consistent energy standpoint throughout the day, that might be something that's worth knowing. It also might be worth knowing what food groups really bring it up fast. Because if you think of this from an application from an endurance athlete, you want your glucose, your glucose to be like available to you while you're out there racing. So if it starts to dip too low, that's a time where taking in some carbohydrate or boosting it up a little bit might be in your benefit. Uh, but if you're like racing along and your, your glucose is really high, that might not be the best time to say, eat one of those foods that's going to jack it even higher up. Cause you might end up getting yourself on a roller coaster ride where you're kind of chasing, chasing the highs and dealing with the lows a little more, a little bit more. Um, they actually did a study on with continuous glucose monitors for again, another hundred kilometer race that, uh, was in uh, Dr. Mark Bubb's book peak. Uh, where they looked at even just recreational hundred kilometer athletes versus professionals and looked to see like how, uh, you know, their fueling strategies may differ based on kind of their ability level and goals and pacing and all that sort of stuff. So that, that might be something that's worth checking out if you want to kind of see how that would go. What I've done with some of my coaching clients who have been using continuous glucose monitors is what we do is we just take good inventory while they're wearing it. So some of the stuff that I just talked about, like, what do you notice when your glucose score dips its lowest? How do you feel? And what can you do if it, let's say you don't feel good when it dips low, which is going to be pretty typical. Uh, if you start to be, be able to notice that sensation, you can kind of predict what the monitor is going to tell you. And if you practice enough while you're wearing it, what you can do to remedy that that's your action plan. Then you don't necessarily need to have that on. You just know, Oh, when I feel like this, this is what I do. So it might shed some light on like just kind of an order of operations that you do specifically for yourself when you're in certain States, if that kind of makes sense. It also might help you kind of organize where and when you eat certain types of foods and things like that. So I guess to answer or to to summarize that answer, I think there, it's, if you have a chance to wear one for two weeks, four weeks or something like that, you'll probably gather at least some data points that'll be valuable for you. Do you need to be wearing them all the time after that? Probably not. I bet after a while you get intuitive enough with kind of how you feel at certain ranges or certain spots that you'll just know and know what to do and what not to do based on that. Uh, so it might be something that you reintroduce if you're going to kind of do a dietary revamp and find out like what new foods you're introducing are going to impact it differently than what you had done more. But if you're pretty consistent with the foods you eat and you're just going to kind of follow that program, then uh, you, once you kind of get the, the, the data you're looking for, you can probably rely on it being consistent over time. If other lifestyle factors like exercise, sleep quality and things uh, don't change. The other interesting thing you could do too with a CGM that would be hard to do without it would just be to monitor how things like sleep impact it. I know when I've worn mine, uh, if I had a bad night of sleep, my CGM monitor would freak out a lot more aggressively with very similar foods that I would have eaten when I had good sleep as well. So there are some kind of interesting little lessons you can learn from there too. That one's probably pretty consistent from one person to the next. I think sleep deprivation is going to create that experience in most cases. So I probably don't have to tell you wear a CGM so you get enough sleep. That might just be something you're probably going to try to uh, strive for anyhow. 
but you can check other things too, like how does your body respond? How does caffeine impact things? How do things like artificial sweeteners impact it, if at all? Uh, some stuff that could potentially be uh, at an individual level that you want to know specific about yourself and find out where you square off amongst kind of the general populace and the studies that have focused on those in the past. All right. So those are our four questions. If, uh, if you want to submit a question for a future guest show, guest question and answer show, um, feel free to shoot me a note at hpopodcast at gmail.com or hit me up on social media. I'll usually throw up a, a post on Twitter every couple of weeks, collecting some questions. And like I said, in the beginning, I've been, I've been throwing up on an Instagram story too, to collect a few that way as well. So if you have something or you want me to dive in deeper on a topic we have covered, shoot me a note and we will add it to the queue. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode sponsors are Optimal Carnivore and their new product, Brain Nourish, which is a nootropic that can help with overall brain function, focus, and productivity, and Element Electrolytes, which make convenient single-serve electrolyte supplements that you can add to your favorite drink. Head over to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors to see all the details, discounts, and links to the episode sponsors. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. 